Lord, again, we thank you for your continued faithfulness and kindness to us. We desperately need Christ. Help us to understand that. Help us to understand our need for you, our insufficiency, your sufficiency, the joy available in you, the joy available in just the fellowship with other believers. We pray that you'd help us to see the importance of unity as we look at this text today. In Christ's name, amen. Turn your Bibles to the book of First uh, Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter 1. We began a series in this book a couple of weeks back, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 17 today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. This statement... Uh, well-known statement, is one that calls us to embrace gospel unity and, in all things, love and charity towards one another. Gospel unity is, no doubt, one of the challenging doctrines to apply. And it is a doctrine now, perhaps more than it ever has been needed, because more things have been invented for us to divide over than ever in our history. We could look at just a very short list. Uh, perhaps maybe we would think of some of the things that stand out uh, of doctrinal matters that we could divide over. We could divide over eschatology, tism, church polity, legalism and antinomianism, Calvinism and Arminianism, the Trinity, the canon the extent of the canon. Uh, we could think also of the cultural issues that are increasing uh, in our current day and age. We think of the social justice issues, the race issues, the sexual issues, uh, identity, who we are, environmental issues, uh, things like psychology and evolution, and all these things we have various views on. The lists go on and on. How can one expect to find unity here in the church when there is so much in our culture to divide on? There's a, a video circulating around. Uh, every once in a while, there's a video, and it's just like, this is a great sermon illustration. Uh, and you've probably seen the video. There's these uh, two gazelles that are fighting with one another, and they're like locked in with one another, going like round and round in this circle. Have you seen that, that video circulating around? And they're just locked in, going around and around in a circle, and all of a sudden, behind them, this lion just like, almost is like just casually just strutting up to the, the scene here. And it is not until just the very last second that these two gazelles see this lion, and for one of them, it's just too late. Uh, and, of course, the sermon illustration for that is when you're busy fighting with one another, you're unaware of all of the attacks coming from the outside. It's a call for unity, for not arguing with one another, but for us to be united in one mind and in one spirit and one judgment, as First Corinthians tells us. 
This is certainly what the quarreling Christian looks like, too busy fighting with one another to see the dangers outside. There is some truth to the statement, and I'll take issue with some of it, but there is some truth to the statement, united we stand, divided we fall. The church is stronger when we are united with one another instead of bickering and quarreling. We would joyfully uh, affirm uh, truth of Psalm 133 in verse 1 that says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good it is to be a part of that. Um, How good it is when the family sits down for dinner and they're not arguing with one another. How good it is when the church gathers together and there's not bickering and arguing with one another. That is what today's passage is about in the book of 1 Corinthians. It is about dwelling together in unity as a church. And when we come to apply this passage to our own lives can specifically apply it to our own church here, Crossview Church, this local body of believers. How can we find unity with one another? Now, it is for this reason, this this reason of, of the push for Christian unity, that there are some passages in our Bible that really cause us to scratch our heads a little bit in confusion. For instance, one would think that with the importance of unity, that anything that divides would be a negative thing. We see this in Genesis 11 and verse 6, when God is condemning the fact that all of humanity has united together. We read, the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They're united. And they have one language, one united language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and they're building the Tower of Babel, of course, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Why is it, with this gospel call in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for us to be unified as believers, that we see God saying unity is not a good thing in this particular context? Or maybe something that really makes us scratch our heads even more would be the words of Jesus Christ himself, where Jesus says this, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, uh, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So how in the world can we take 1 Corinthians chapter 1, be unified together, and also take Jesus saying, I haven't come to bring peace, I've come to create division among you. How can these things go together? And so we really want to accomplish three tasks today. The first task we want to accomplish is we want to understand what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 means in its immediate context. What is Paul calling the Corinthians to be united about? And then beyond that, as uh, perhaps a second goal, we want to know what this passage means in the context of the whole Bible. In other words, how can 1 Corinthians 1 and Luke 12 be compatible in any sense of the word? How can we understand what unity means and division means and how all this fits together? And the third thing we want to accomplish is we want to know what this means for us today. Okay, what am I supposed to do with this call for Christian unity?
And so let's begin by looking at the passage itself, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank uh, God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I really want to look at this passage today in three sections. Verses 10 through 12 is going to be the rebuke. Verses 13 through 16 is going to be the rationale or the reason for this. And then verse 17 is going to be the priority. What is it that stands out above everything else as the priority here? And so let's jump right in, beginning in verse 10. As gentle as possible, the Apostle Paul starts off by saying, I appeal to you, brothers. It is uh, as perhaps a father uh, might admonish his children. It's done certainly with a spirit of gentleness. He calls them brothers. Uh, even the word appeal itself is uh, gentle here. The word appeal uh, is a word that means to come alongside of someone. He is coming alongside of these brothers and sisters in Christ. He's speaking to them with gentleness as a father would admonish his children. He appeals to them as brothers, not as enemies. And he does this by a certain brand of authority. He doesn't say, I, Paul, based on my own authority and my own opinions and my own thoughts, appeal to you to do this. He says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this certainly is where we have a little bit of spillover from what we saw last week. Uh, last week, you might remember that in the first um, uh, nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we said that the Apostle Paul was really setting forward uh, the context for all of his appeals. He was going to make some pretty strong applications in 1 Corinthians, but he started it by being very Christocentric, Christ-centered, very theocentric, very God-centered, and he, he began by really setting the stage for the fact that we need Christ for our sanctification. And so that kind of spills over here a little bit. Let me remind you that you can't be unified without Christ. You need Christ to be sanctified. But the other thing I want us to note about this particular statement, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, is simply this. This statement is a statement of authority. Paul says this with the complete expectation that by saying the name of Christ, it's enough. 
He doesn't have to say, I'm going to tell you why this also will benefit you pragmatically, although he could say that. But he simply says, I'm going to make this appeal based on the authority of Christ. And so right here, at the start of this passage, we have to take our first pit stop and explore this concept of authority. What does it mean for Paul to say, I tell you this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? The manner in which Paul frames his argument, he's not even getting to the argument yet, but he's framing the argument to be united. The way that he frames this argument is absolutely fascinating and increasingly difficult for modern man to appreciate. In the introduction, I gave you the illustration of the two gazelles locked together fighting in battle. And if the message started and stopped with that illustration, you might be tempted to think this. We should be united because we are stronger together. Unity is important because it produces this result. And certainly we wouldn't deny that that is a fact, that uh, we will be better as a church, better off as a church if we're united together. And so while that may be true, if that's the only reason why we want to be unified, then that ultimately is not Christianity, that is pragmatism. It is the end justifies the means. It is, I want this result, so what do I have to do to get there? Now, I want us to think about this for a moment, okay? Why should we do what we do? Where, where does our ought come from? You ought to do this, and you ought not to do that. You ought not slap your brother or your sister. You ought not to behave in that kind of a way. You ought to be kind. What considerations do we entertain when we think about the manner in which we dress? What impacts our speech and our thinking? Why do we go to church or stay home from church? Why should we be kind to one another? Why should we not murder? Why should we not commit abortion? Where should we get our sexual codes from? Where do we learn about morality? Why do I do what I do? Now, I would say that probably most people don't give this a lot of thought. Maybe some do. We usually act a little bit more on impulse. This is what I feel like, and I'm going to do it, and I don't really care. We usually first run to pragmatism. Um, this feels good, or it has a good result, um, or whatever it might be. Um, we have uh, maintained that the reason that we are to do what we do is because thus saith the Lord. Period. There is a a ministry um, that I've had the opportunity to interact with a little bit that teaches 
in our local schools abstinence. And that's a good thing that we should uh, teach our young people. Um, But what is interesting is that because there is uh, the inability to talk about Christ in the local school, the way that it is taught is through pragmatic considerations. So you should practice abstinence because you don't want to get an STD or an unplanned pregnancy or whatever it might be. Um, Philip Reef, an American sociologist who passed away back in 2006, said that the biggest difference between previous generations and our current generation is that our current generation has no sacred order. And what he means by this term, sacred order, is he means that our current generation has no values outside of self that I have to appeal to or obey. So when I'm considering whether I should engage in this behavior or that behavior, previous generations used to think, what is expected of me? Now, these could be bad expectations because the culture gives us bad expectations sometimes. Um, Or it could be good expectations, the Bible and the authority of Scripture. That is something that is outside of me. So when I have to uh, do this or do that, my consideration is what does the Bible say? What does Scripture say about this? That is what Philip Reef, this sociologist, would call a sacred order. And he says that uh, this does not exist anymore today. And this is what I would say is one of the problems with this particular approach of going into our local school district and teaching this particular way is that there is no appeal to an outside authority. The appeal is to self. The appeal is not to Christ. It is not we should act this way because God says so in his word. The appeal is let me figure out a way in which this pragmatically will work out for you in the end. Ultimately, that really still keeps you as in the driver's seat. You're still the authority. You're still calling the shots. And really, that is something foreign altogether to Scripture. Let me give you another example. The popular slogan today, my body, my choice, is first, before anything else, a statement of authority. This is where authority comes from. There is no appeal to an outside authority. There is no consideration to, is there a God out there who expects me to act in this kind of a way or that kind of a way? The appeal is to myself, my own authority. The appeal doesn't go higher than the ceiling. It only refers to self. And this is something that happens across spectrums, by the way. Uh, even uh, when I hear uh, conservative people talk about freedom, sometimes I wonder, what kind of freedom are you talking about? God puts some boundaries on us. God says we should do this and not do this. Why shouldn't we murder? Why should we speak kind to one another? Why should we do all those things? Do you know what the Old Testament prophets said? Thus saith the Lord. 
period. End of conversation. God said it. That's all that matters. Now, of course, we understand that we do not live in a thus saith the Lord culture. This has very little attraction to modern man. Instead of living in a thus saith the Lord culture, what culture do we live in? We live in a everyone did what was right in his own eyes culture from Judges chapter 17 and verse 6. This is why to the average person on the street, the statement in 1 Corinthians 1.10 that we're currently looking at, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, means absolutely nothing. It, it carries zero weight to the average person on the street. I want to emphasize this because it requires consideration. The Bible clearly couches its commands in the authority, the sole authority of a thrice holy God. You do this because God said this. No argument. Even the Ten Commandments themselves begins with what? I am the Lord your God. Therefore, go and do this. Why should we not have idols? Because God said. Why should we honor father and mother? Because God said. Why should we not commit adultery? Because God said. Understand that one of the big differences between our current culture and the culture of the Bible is the presence or the absence of the sacred order, namely, in this case, the Bible. Scripture teaches us that we are accountable to something outside of ourselves, that we don't get to call all the shots. Culture, on the other hand, teaches us that we are the highest authority. The, the, I, I am most uh, in the right when I am most true to myself. That's when I'm the most genuine, when I'm doing what I want and what I feel is right. We don't live in a thus saith the Lord culture. We live in a everything, everyone did what was right in his own eyes culture. But the Bible, in this verse, clearly presumes that Christ has authority to dictate our behavior and actions. I appeal to you by what standard? By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the standard. And, and Paul doesn't go on to say, let me give you five reasons why you should listen to Jesus. He just says it. Christ has authority to dictate our behavior and our actions. He has authority to tell us how to act. And with this divine authority, he commands what? Unity. And we see that right here. I appeal to you, brothers, by the authority, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Now, he gives us, in this verse, three appeals. Number one, that they all agree. Number two, that there be no divisions among you. And number three, that you all be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Variations of the same phrase here. Now, one thing to note and observe here is that this call for Christian unity that is done on the appeal of Christ's authority is not the same as uniformity. Unity and uniformity are two different things. 
Uh, he's not calling for Christian clones, that all of us look completely and perfectly identical. Now, one of the reasons that we know this is because in chapter 12 of our same book, uh, Paul highlights all the differing roles in the church. Some people are an eye, some people are a hand, some people are a foot. And so Paul is expecting in this book that there are going to be differences. He's not calling for uniformity. He's calling for unity, that we are uh, of the same mind and of the same judgment, uh, even amongst some differences that are uh, between us. Um, So there are distinctions between us. What Paul does here is he tells us not only the positive, but the negative. So when he says you're to agree, he follows it up by saying you're not to have any divisions. Division in the Greek is where we get our English word schism from. And we see this concept clearly in Romans 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who create or cause divisions. But once again, we're left with that nagging thought, but Jesus said, if, if this is something that Paul says is based on the authority of Christ, that there be no divisions, how can that same Christ say, do you think I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you rather division. How in the world can we reconcile these two seemingly irreconcilable realities? Well, we'll explore this a little bit, but I think perhaps maybe on a basic level, all of us recognize, whether we may admit it or not, we recognize intuitively that in some situations, in some scenarios, unity is the best course of action, and in other situations, division is the best course of action. I mean, Jesus has to be talking about, in these kinds of scenarios, division is what is going to happen, and, and then in these kinds of scenarios, unity is what should happen. And so let me uh, help us understand maybe some context to this. Let's consider 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Uh, in that verse, we have this, "'Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness?' Okay? So in this particular context, we can think of various scenarios. Perhaps it's uh, a marriage scenario or a business partnership where a believer says, I am going to unify together with an unbeliever. What Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6 is that you are unequally yoked. So instead of being united with that particular person, he's actually saying you should be divided from that person not in an animosity kind of a way, but just in a way that this is not going to work out because you have two completely different worldviews going on here. This, uh, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, is quite clearly a call to division, a kind of division. Um, And I think this is the kind of division that Jesus is talking about. When Jesus says, I have come to divide families so that there will be fathers and sons or mothers and daughters that will be divided from one another. I think this is the kind of division that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying that because people will be converted to Christ, 
some of the most core relationships that we hold dearly are going to be divided as a natural result of that. It's going to happen. At the end of the day, the context for 1 Corinthians is that their division was not this kind of division. Their division was a division that took the form of quarreling, and that was what was in particular wrong about it. In 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 11, the next verse, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, brothers. They were fighting with one another. So you have this body of believers, this church, and they were all fighting with one another. I think we can take this to mean that we need to be very careful and intentional about the hills that we are willing to die on. Not everything is worth fighting over. Not every hill is a hill to die on. Not every disagreement is something that we should go to war over. There are some, will, uh, some hills that are worth dying on, and that's going to create division. And there are other hills that are not worth dying on. Otherwise, we're just quarreling over everything. Churches must have doctrinal unity. If we cannot agree on the fundamentals of Christianity, then, then there's not really a genuine kind of unity going on. If we disagree over who Christ was, we can't have unity. While not all of us here at Crossview will agree on every single matter, perhaps things such as styles of music, eschatological views, uh, consuming alcohol in moderation, how does all of this work out? There should be lock-tight unity and agreement on the fundamentals of the faith, like the virgin birth of Christ, justification by faith alone, necessity of the gospel. If we cannot agree on who Christ is, then we can't have unity. I do know churches that try to have a diversity of beliefs on these foundational matters. We can try to have all these diverse views about who Christ is, but still find unity because we all believe in Christ. Uh, that creates a lot of division. Um, instead of this division, Paul says that all of you agree, which literally means that all of you speak the same thing. If we don't understand, if someone thinks that Jesus is just a good moral teacher, and then the next person says he's the Savior, there is not a lot of Christian unity that you're able to have and cultivate in that kind of a, a view. To be unified implies that there is something that we are uniting around. As a country, we might be united around the concept of freedom and liberty. As a book club, you might be united around your love for good literature. A science club might be united around uh, discovery and knowledge. Uh, those things are foundational for these particular clubs or organizations. If, if you're part of a book club and you hate books and never read books, you're probably not going to be very united with that club. Uh, there's going to be something odd going on there. What should the church be united around? Well, most obviously, it should be around Jesus Christ. 
But again, if all of us understand Christ to be some, someone different, then that's not going to be very uh, unified. Paul is telling these people at Corinth to change their minds. You must be united in mind and in judgment. You must all say the same thing. You must speak the same thing. That is going to require some people who are saying some wrong things to change their thinking so that they can be united around the core issues of Christianity. So the path or part of the path to becoming unified is to stop thinking false things about Jesus and start thinking right things about him. Unity, by its very nature, requires boundaries. It requires lines to be drawn in the sand. Uh, otherwise, there's, there's nothing to be united. We're just united around nothing. You, you have to say, this is what it means to be a Christian, and these are the things that we hold dear, and this is what we're going to be united around. Now, this took a very specific form in Corinth, because in Corinth, in the very next verse, Paul says, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So the specific problem with regard to their quarreling in Corinth is that these Christians were fighting over Christian personalities. You know, I, I'm, I'm of John MacArthur. I'm of John Piper. You know, I'm of, of this one. I'm of that one. Vody Bauckham, Paul Washer, whatever, okay? We're, we're creating these personality cults. And, of course, certainly uh, there's a great need for these Christian leaders who pour time into the Word. We're not saying that it's inherently wrong to quote or appreciate one of these individuals. But we are saying that a personality cult is not good. Um, and what is interesting and perhaps one of the nagging questions from verse 12 that you may be thinking is, I can understand why Paul would rebuke, I follow Paul. I can understand why he would rebuke, I follow Apollos. I can understand why he would rebuke, I follow Cephas. But what in the world is he doing rebuking that group of people that says, I follow Christ? I mean, what in the world is, isn't this the ideal? Isn't this what Paul is, is like aiming for? Like, I want all of you to follow Christ. Isn't that what Christianity is about, following Christ? So how in the world does this fit in uh, Paul's line of reasoning here? Um, there has been actually a lot of debate about this. Um, and there are a lot of views on this. And... While it is hard to say absolutely, positively, 100% sure, I think we can be reasonably sure that the majority and popular view is the correct view, which is simply that the I follow Christ group is probably, they're probably just as arrogant as the rest of everyone else, and they're, they're boasting in themselves, and they're, they're doing it kind of like this, Okay. You know, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, well, I follow Christ. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I don't know what you guys are doing, but I, me, <laughs> in my wisdom, have decided to follow Christ. Now, probably the best 
modern example of this that I can think of is the group of people that say this, no creed but Christ. You ever heard of that before? Anyone? A couple of you are nodding. Many of you don't know what I'm talking about, okay? There, there's a group of, uh, of Christians who would simply say, no creed but Christ. And we can certainly understand how we would get to here, but in the midst of where we are in the world and where we are in Christianity, there are a lot of doctrinal statements, there are a lot of statements of faith, a lot of statements of belief, there are a lot of historic confessions or creeds as they're called, there are a lot of modern ones, and there are a lot of different denominations, and there's all these kinds of varieties. You can find a church uh, with any theology that you want, right down to the color of the carpet and the style of pews that they have, and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a customizable age uh, in Christianity right now. You can get whatever you want. And so, understandably, some individuals say, this is so confusing, I don't know what to believe, I just, no creed but Christ. It, I, it's just Christ. We don't need any confessions of faith, we don't need any uh, theology, we don't need any doctrine, we just, you believe Christ, I believe Christ, we're good. End of story. Um, Again, there, there, there is something perhaps to be appreciated about, and, and something that we preach is that all we need in order to be satisfied is Christ, Christ alone. We sing about Christ alone. But that's not quite what this is. This is a little bit different because, and I think it's a disingenuous position, because Christ must be defined. I mean, what did he do? What, what, what did Jesus do? He died on the cross for what? For, for, for our sins? Who is Jesus? You, you can't just say, no creed but Christ, if by that you mean doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine does matter. And so if I'm going to, if, if I'm going to, to cling to Christ alone as I ought to, it's going to have some definitions. Christ is this, not this. The, the, the no creed but Christ really opens the door for no distinction between what uh, historic Christianity believes and the Jehovah's Witness who denies the deity of Christ. There's a difference. And so while we would understand, on one hand, the frustration with all of the different creeds out there, on, on the other hand, we have to understand that Christ has to be defined in some meaningful fashion for us to be unified around Christ. And so that's what we're saying is this, well, I follow Christ. Oh, no creed but Christ. Well, what are the definitions of who Christ is in those sorts of things? This is the problem that we have in Corinth. Paul lays out the problem. There's all these factions, all these divisions even a division with this arrogant group that says, well, I'm just a Christian. Paul now turns to his rationale in why we should be unified. 
And it's a theological one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 13 through 16, he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized uh, in the name of Paul? The reason that the Corinthian Christians should not be divided is because why? He's giving doctrine here. He's giving theology. It's a theology lesson in the nature of God, in the nature of Christ. Is Christ divided? No, Christ is not divided. Therefore, his people should not be divided. We see in uh, Romans uh, 12 and verse 5, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. There's unity in the body of Christ. Paul uses a theological reality to teach them about Christian unity. We should be united because Christ is not divided. Furthermore, as he argues here in this particular section, their salvation is based in Christ, not in a man. Paul didn't die for them. They weren't baptized in Paul's name. And then, of course, Paul gives this little, perhaps maybe humorous or personal note about only baptizing two people and then saying, uh, I don't think I baptize anyone else. And the point of all of this uh, is, is to say that you should not be clinging on me as a man. Paul had a minimal role in their baptisms, and he's saying something else is more important than this. And what is that? Well, that's the priority in verse 17. We read this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This verse is a transition statement to what we're going to see, Lord willing, next week. Paul is about to begin talking about wisdom. And this transition statement emphasizes the importance of keeping Christ first place. He's about to talk about wisdom, and so now as he's finishing up this call on unity, he's saying, I want to talk to you about wisdom and where it comes from. Paul says that his call from the Lord was to preach the gospel, not to baptize, which helps us to recognize a significant principle, namely... That instead of focusing on divisiveness and quarrels and the status of human celebrity pastors, we should be focusing supremely on Christ, the centrality of Christ in the gospel. So interestingly enough, right after he rebukes the, the Christ alone group, he says Christ alone, <laughs> which leads us to believe that the Christ alone group really wasn't the Christ alone group. It was the me alone, and my wisdom led me to this view that I, I could get here, and, and I'm the one who's, you know, in charge here kind of a thing. So where do we go from here? Well, we said at the beginning that we wanted to accomplish three things. First, we wanted to know what this means in the context of 1 Corinthians. Why call them to have unity? Secondly, we wanted to know what this means in the context of the whole Bible. How can this fit with Jesus' statement in Luke 12? And then third, we wanted to know what does this mean for us today? Well, first of all, in the context of 1 Corinthians, the passage is specifically referring to Corinthian Christians quarreling over personality cults. That is contrary, as Paul tells us, to the unity found in Christ. Christ isn't divided, you shouldn't be divided either. Unify together, stop fighting. Then we saw in the context of the whole Bible, unity does require division in a sense. If I'm going to be united and say I'm about this, 
that means I'm going to have to say I'm not about that. If I'm going to stand on the fact that justification is by faith alone, then I'm going to have to say I can't stand with those who deny that doctrine and say you could work your way to God. There's going to be some hills that we're going to have to die on. Um, I can't be united in Christ unless I divide from people who deny Christ. If I'm going to have unity in the gospel, then that means something for how I interact with people who deny the gospel. Again, it's not that we're uh, having animosity towards people. Of, above all people as Christians, we should be loving to all people. That's what we started off with, that quote, right? Uh, in all things um, charity or love. So we should be the most loving and compassionate and kind and patient people with unbelievers. That's not what this is saying. This is just saying, I can't really say that we're going in the same direction here. We're, we're trying to accomplish something different. And then third, what does this mean for us in our own lives? Well, I have five points of application. Number one, taken directly from the text, do not quarrel over Christian personalities. Okay? Your pastor and pastors that you may appreciate and listen to on podcasts and things across the world, not God. I didn't die for you. Bodie Bauckham didn't die for you, or whoever your favorite. Christ died for you. And so let's be careful. Um, and, and we can, and by the way, I, you see me bring up, I'm, I'm, I haven't quoted any, anyone today, uh, but I'm going to in just a minute here, A.W. Tozer. We can say there are some insights that these people have without endorsing everything that they say. And so we can have that balance. Second one is this. Before bringing up a matter for debate, prayerfully consider whether it is an issue of first importance. In other words, just be careful what hill you're going to die on. Not to say that we can't discuss these differences, but is this something worth dividing over if necessary? Number three... Be willing to stand firm on important doctrinal matters, yet do so in a spirit of meekness. Okay, if this is uh, a matter of first importance, uh, as Luther says, here I stand. We have to do that. Next one is this, regarding the authority of Christ and his word. This is a mouthful, sorry. Lay aside a everyone did what was right in his own eyes perspective and embrace a thus saith the Lord perspective. In other words, it's Christ's authority. It's God's authority. This is why we do what we do. And then uh, the last one here is pursue unity in the church, not quarreling over issues of conscience, yet not compromising on foundational Christian doctrines. A.W. Tozer says this, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which everyone must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to be 
become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. What is Tozer saying? You want a hundred pianos to be in tune with one another? Don't tune the hundred pianos to one another. Tune them to one standard and everything fits that. What Tozer is saying, the more that we look to Christ, the more that we're going to all of a sudden look up one day and say, we're united (laughs) because we're tuned to Christ and therefore we're tuned to one another. And so let us look to Christ to tune ourselves to him and his authority and his word. And then and only then can we be united with one another. Let's pray. Thank you, God, again for today and your word and your faithfulness and your kindness. Help us to be united, first of all, to you so that we could go and then be united with one another. Help us to apply this passage to our own hearts. In Christ's name, amen.